Welcome to Evolve to Succeed, the podcast that brings together business owners, leaders and experts to talk about their business journeys and provide them with invaluable insights and explore the link between personal and business success. I am your host, Warren Munson, founder of Evolve. I've previously founded, grown and successfully exited three businesses in the business services and technology sectors. I have a passion for helping and advising businesses and seeing them succeed. We all know that leading and running a business comes with its own unique joys and challenges and Evolve provides the advice, guidance and support to the business, you and your teams on that journey, be that if you're starting, growing or looking to exit or step away from your business. We do this through our Ignite, Thrive and Optimize programs and services, which includes strategic advice, coaching and mentoring, leadership training, funded business support and so much more. If you want to learn more about Evolve, then please do go to evolveadvisory.co.uk or connect and message me on LinkedIn. For now though, let's just get on with the show. Welcome to the 200th episode of the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Since launching this podcast at the end of 2019, I've had the enormous privilege of interviewing so many incredible individuals. Many of these conversations have not only taught me new things on topics such as leadership, resilience and well-being, but they've also caused me to stop and reflect on both my personal and professional journey in life, sometimes days or even weeks after the course of the conversation. Being informative and adding value in a myriad of different ways has always been the goal of this podcast and it's been extremely satisfying to see the number of subscribers and listeners grow month on month, as well as receiving positive comments on each and every episode. So before we start with today's show, I'd like to thank everybody who's been on this journey with me so far, from our wonderful guests to you, the loyal listener. I hope to have you along for the next 200. To mark this special occasion, we've lined up a very special guest in the form of Kate Aidy. Kate Aidy was the BBC News Chief News Correspondent between 1989 and 2003, during which time she reported from war zones around the world. She retired from the BBC in early 2003 and now works as a freelance presenter on BBC Radio 4. Kate's 14-year career as a news correspondent saw her cover everything from the Troubles in Northern Ireland, the Lockerbie bombing, the Tiananmen Square protests, to the wars in the Gulf and Yugoslavia and also the Rwandan genocide. She has met leaders such as Colonel Gaddafi and survived being shot at at point-blank range. Among her numerous awards and recognitions, in 2018, Kate was appointed CBE and made Chancellor of Bournemouth University in January 2019. She has also written several books, including an incredible autobiography entitled The Kindness of Strangers. Kate's has been an unusual and exceptional life and career and I was delighted at the opportunity to spend some time with her to sit down with her for this very special interview. Finally, a thanks to Lewis Manning Hospice Care as the opportunity to interview Kate came from a fundraising event for the charity where I hosted a Q&A session with Kate. During the course of the conversation, Kate does explain why she supports and believes in the charity. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with this very passionate and very brave and very special individual. Welcome, Kate, to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Thank you. 
Uh, lovely to have you on the podcast. There is so much that we could talk to, but in the short time that we've got, um, thought we would talk about your life and how seizing opportunities it presented itself to you played a big part. Talk about you know some of the dangerous situations you've placed or found yourself in, rather than perhaps placed yourself in. Working in a team under pressure, and maybe if we get chance, we'll touch on the current kind of state of media. So let's get things underway. Um, you've got a great autobiography, The Kindness of Strangers, which I've read. And that probably surprised me when I read that, is that you came back from, Kate grew up in quite a quiet background um, and, you know, had a great education and kind of fell into media, journalism by chance. Is that a fair summary? Mm, you're missing the word desperation. Um, I found myself when I was... Um, I found myself after university with a rather obscure degree in languages. And I don't regret that because the actual being at university for me was a real sort of um, widening the world. You're quite right. I, I came from a sort of quite quiet background, lovely, solid, um, loving pa parents, my adoptive parents, enjoyed life, um, nothing much dramatic in it. And I look back on it now, long, long time ago, to realise just what a solid sort of basis it gives you for dealing with the rest of life. Um, I'm far more aware now of people who have difficult childhoods, terrible time, things happen, that I didn't have that. I had a wonderful time, just quiet and fun and quite comfortable um, friends, the seaside in the northeast, um, and enjoyed it. And I realise how much that gives me a basis for sort mm -hmm. of dealing with the rest of life. I don't think I thought of it at the time. I, I went off to university, which again broadened um, my views. I turned up as a girl from a sort of single-sex um, private school, um, uh, and there was a university full of blokes doing engineering <laughs> and mining engineering and agriculture. Uh, there were very few women around in those days. We were all doing arts degrees, of course, nor were we particularly expected to have a career. No. So there was this sort of uh, situation where you weren't really, know, you didn't really know where you were heading. All the men, there they were in specific professions, medicine, engineering, architecture, town planners, big thing in those days. They were all men, on the whole, just the odd woman doing medicine. And, well, it was for us possibly teaching something in the arts or getting married yeah. um, and having a family, and that was that. There was no great thought of career. And... I was very aware of that in my final year, but realising that I did want to do something. Mm. You know, I wanted a real job. And I left without much idea about what it might be. And a complete stroke of luck, about six weeks after I left, my local newspaper popped up with an advertisement for a newfangled sort of radio, local radio, BBC Radio Durham, was going to be one of the stations, um, eight stations, in fact. And there I was, all of 12 miles from Durham, and knew it well, and I thought, oh, well, at least 
I'm local, <laughs> which is, I think, what I spent my time um, talking to this rather intimidating interview board, which the BBC used to have in those days, uh, which asked you all sorts of questions. I kept saying, well, you know, I know the area. <laughs> and amazingly, I was hired. I had no idea what I was going to do. And I then had an absolutely terrifying, um, I think it's six or eight weeks in London with 15 other people. We were a tiny radio station. Uh, none of us were quite sure what we were heading for. And they were giving us the most amazing training session. I mean, it was truly terrifying. Mm-hmm. And we're in the ambience of Broadcasting House in London. All these famous people and well-known voices. And I, we were all gobsmacked. We were all local pretty well. And we were heading off for an experiment. So it was quite a challenge. And what you did was you learned to do anything and everything that was thrown at you. Mm. You were going to learn to drive a radio car, operate a radio car, be in a studio, cut tape, which we used to in those days on our editing machines, interview people, everything. Uh, Read the weather forecast. Or in my case, actually often make it up because we <laughs> couldn't afford the actual Met Office fees. Um, was that a case of just looking out the window, was it? <laughs> yes, yes, very, very much so. So, so it, was, it was an enormous challenge and it, I found it, and I think all of us did, it, we were all pretty young, we found it thrilling. It was another world. And, of course, the BBC in those days was. It was this extraordinary institution with very bizarre and occasionally eccentric behaviour, but also with this absolutely staggering uh, history behind it of being really the world leader in radio. But it was at that time, wasn't it? It was the mid to late 70s here, and, and you spent your time at BBC Radio Durham, BBC Bristol, before moving into local television, but it was a time of reform, wasn't it? And the BBC trying to find its new place in the world, was that? Absolutely. It was a time of experiment, in a way. The BBC, I think, I don't think it used the word, but I think decided to be a little bit more democratic. Radio 1 had just burst upon it, and uh, they were none too sort of keen, being pushed in there, if anybody remembers, the pirate radio stations Mm. at sea playing pop music that all the young people were listening to. So it knew it had to do a little bit sort of to brush up on what young people wanted. And also, most of the people who ever came in to be... Uh, on air had been chosen they were carefully scripted the whole thing was very organized local radio they said might be different they didn't realize boy (laughs) well we got it in our heads that really what we had was the opportunity to put anything and everyone on air which was fantastic. We had to invent the programme schedule. We spent hours and hours arguing with each other about what would people like to hear, what they want to hear, where could we go and do something, etc. It was so exciting. And we really invented the programme streams as we went along. And we learned making mistakes one after another. You know, what was going to happen? Uh, 
the most obvious sort of mistake was thinking that people would think we were wonderful. Well, first of all, you know, how do you tell people there's a new station? You know, we didn't have a budget for advertising. So one of the things we had was a brand new spanking thing called a radio car <laughs> emblazoned with our name on it, you know, and the um, uh, the wavelength. And they thought, we thought this was it. And so we took it on to a huge housing estate the, when we got it the first week and expected people to flock around. <laughs> and they all ran inside because they thought we were the TV licensed detector fan. <laughs> first lesson. We had a lot of lessons. But we pretty well made it up as we went along, which was the most extraordinary opportunity for young broadcasters. And it was the grounding. I talk about it because it was the grounding for everything I did subsequently. This gave you all of that foundation of knowledge oh, and skills. and Absolutely. Um, basically, you were there to, to be able to deal with people by listening to them not talking over them, letting them tell the story. You were there to be inquiring, but not too pushing. You had no right, as it were, to invade people's lives, but you were curious, inquisitive, and there were wonderful stories to be told. And it was the most marvellous sort of groundwork laid um, for everything I did later. People don't sort of connect it. They think, oh, local radio, all of those years. I did a year and a half on Durham, and then I went to Bristol mm. and did almost five years in Bristol and so, did every sort of programme. I was the farming producer. I did Thought for the Day. I occasionally did the pop programme badly. <laughs> I had a political interview weekend programme and um, the drive time afternoon every so afternoon. I did the lot. We all did. We all did. And it was such an education. It was wonderful. And from that grounding, obviously, as you know, the listeners will remember you on national TV, but it wasn't a straightforward route for you from sort of local radio to national TV, was it, I never Kate? even thought of moving. I thought it was lovely. I was having a great time in Bristol. I had a great social life. It was huge fun. It was a lovely city. I didn't really... I had no ambitions, really. I I mean, people go, oh, surely much, oh, you must have planned, oh, you know, these days, young people are far more organised about what they want or what they think they're going to do or they should do. I had a clue. I was having a great time. Um, we did all sorts of things and it was immense fun. It was a very hard work. Um, we worked 11 hours a day, 12 hours a day. Hard frequently, graft. And it was absolutely, uh, seven days a week. There were just not enough people on the station to do what we all set out to do. But it was huge fun. And in fact, it was the boss, who was a wonderfully talented man called David Wayne, who went on to be head of BBC Midlands and was extraordinary sort of far-seeing. And he said to me one day, I think you're getting a bit stale. You've done some things, you know, one year, then the next, etc. You need to change. I said, really? <laughs> he said, go to Plymouth. He said, I've fixed up. You're going to Plymouth. This was a Friday. Yeah. On Monday. Uh, they've got, they're a bit short, um, you know, and I said, well, and I sort of raced off in that 
had to find somewhere to live or at least be for a short time. I packed the car, etc., drove down there on the Sunday to a sort of hastily arranged sort of lodgings, turned up on the Monday morning to an, and found myself in a real newsroom. Now, I hadn't been in newsrooms, either in Durham or Bristol. They were entirely male setups. Okay. No women worked in it. I mean, it was very rare, and in re- regional telly as well. And so I went to the news meeting at nine o'clock and was very nervous. And at some point they were dishing out stories for people to do and they said, oh, on uh, Kate's new here this morning, um, but we need someone to go to, Bar- um, to Barnstaple. It was Barnstaple, I think. Um, to interview some people at an old people's home. And I said, fine, I've done that before. I thought, no, it's fine, you see. So I whizzed out of the newsroom and found where they kept tape recorders and headed out there, you know, sort of clutching a map. Where's Barnstable, you know? And, and, and went out the door and a bloke followed me and sort of caught up with me. And I said, hi, I said, oh, my name's Kate. Um, I'm new here this morning. He said, I'm Colin. And I said, I'm, I really can't wait. I'm going to Barnstable. I've got to do a story there. I've got a story there in old people's home. He said, yes, I'm coming. And I said, why? He said, well, this. And under his arm, there was clearly a camera, <laughs> a rather big one. And I went, who? He said, it's for, as if to an idiot, television. <laughs> It's a camera. And that was when the penny dropped, was it? Well, I mean, I was completely (laughs) gobsmacked. I turned out I was actually working for the telly programme in the evening. It was a bit of a surprise. I was a bit of a baptism of fire as well. Um, I sort of struggled through it. Uh, I got through it. I learned. I learned every day. I made mistakes. I was there for a few months. And then... To my surprise, the editor there suggested, he said, because he had an all-male newsroom as well. Oh, gosh. Where yeah, the, I can imagine there's some stories. Where problems in those <laughs> days, you know. It was the bloke's area. And I didn't sort of... I, I, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I could go back to my old job, but I thought, I'm not sure. And then the suggestion was... I should try for a staff job as a reporter in Southampton. Okay. So it was the sort of suggestion which you know is being put in front of you firmly. So I did. And to my amazement, I got it and I went to Southampton. And I was there for, I think, maybe about five, six months. And then I got sacked. (laughs) Because the news editor was a man who didn't really like news which was a bit of a problem. It's a bit of, a bit and, of an issue when you're head of the newsroom. And um, he, he was sort of didn't like things like strikes and riots and murders and all the stuff that makes up news he, at times. I assume so. he wanted all the fluffy stuff. And uh, <laughs> one morning I got a tip-off. I was living in Brighton covering that area for South That from my neighbour that there'd been a murder up the road. He said, you should go and look at it. So I thought, well, out the door. And it was. It was the only murder I've ever been to where there was one body 
sort of slumped over the railings of the fire escape, all in view of the passing traffic and the large crowd underneath. Wow. It was absolutely the most bizarre scene. <laughs> Not an everyday situation. So, quite simply, I phoned the crew, everything, got them over, did the story, hadn't a clue what I was up to, got the can of film, and um, then went to a public telephone box. This tells you how long ago this yeah. was. So I thought, initiative, you know, and rang the name. I've got the bit, and he said I was interrupted in my stream of dis- description by the voice that I'm very displeased. You should have been at Ditchling at 11 o'clock this morning for the ladies' embroidery exhibition. Mm, I, I didn't actually quite agree with that, and I think I said so over the phone <laughs> in no uncertain terms. And he said, well, you're fired. I was fired. That was it. And amazingly, I was picked up. It's a long story, but... Cut it short, I'd done a couple of stints in London. The phone went, would you believe, 20 minutes after I got home. And I said, well, I've been fired. They said, can you do Saturday and Sunday in London? I said, yeah. And they said, well, you better stay. (laughs) That's how I got it. And you never looked back. I became a television reporter. I I say all of this. It may seem trivial to people, but it's a very different era. Mm. Um, It... It put faith in people without going through huge rigmaroles yeah. of, uh, you know, sort of um, uh, interviewing and everything. It said if they thought you had potential, if you could do things, you gave people a chance. Yeah. There was a lot of that went on at the time. It was quite sort of dynamic. And it was a serious system of management that was totally bizarre. Yeah. It was full of traditional ways and vast bursts of eccentricity and innovation mixed together, uh, which took some dealing with, yeah. but was immensely exciting to be part of. And empowering, a, really. Yeah, it was a very, very solid base you were working for, of people who were at the top of their profession, on the engineers and the producers and editors. But at the same time... The unexpected happened, and the BBC sort of rose to do it. <laughs> and you did. And, and I suppose that's what you then ended up doing as you know, the chief news correspondent for the BBC. You know, we'll remember you covering such things as the uh, embassy siege in London, the Lockerbie bombing, Tiananmen Square, the Gulf War, various wars, you know, Yugoslavia... Rwanda, Sierra Leone, there's so many things that we'll all remember you for and your coverage. But I suppose moving on to that topic, did you, when you were doing that and in those situations, and we can probably all recount some of the footage of you cowering behind on, on the floor, you know, during the siege and some of the war footage where there's, you can hear the shots being fired around you. How did you deal with that life of danger? You never thought about it as danger per se. It wasn't an obsession. And it certainly wasn't the modern obsession about the damage that it does to people or can do, but doesn't automatically do to actually be, you know, under certain distress. The job was what it was about, getting the story and in television, getting the pictures. Mm. And you had to do it. And the... Absolutely underlying line was, 
You weren't going to be the story. You didn't get involved. Mm. And you didn't get to the point where you couldn't do it because perhaps you're injured or you get stuck. You were not. You were a messenger who was sent to get the message out. And it was important to get that story back. Mm -hmm. And that ruled so much of where you went, how you did it, how you approached something, when to pull out. Not that anybody was telling you this no, is the moment. Right. You had to use your very, by then, quite well-honed judgment because you don't go to these stories without a whole bag of experience mm -hmm. behind you. Because people who do that get killed. Give you an example. In the awful civil war in Yugoslavia, when it broke up in the 90s, in the first few weeks, it was the first war of, of, of any major sort of fighting sort, very serious, that had broken out in Europe mm. for a long time. And huge numbers of young people realized you could get there with a train ticket and get into the country and try your luck with camera or tape recorder or mm. notebook. And in those first six weeks, there was the most terrifying toll of injured and some dead young people mm. who thought, this is my opportunity. This is my moment. I'll report this and this will make me, I'll get into the business. It was terrible. You do not go to these places unless you have an idea how to get out of them yeah. and what you might encounter. It was a lesson to everyone. I mean, as in a sort of business, yes, there can be the sort of great sort of moment stroke of luck and you might make your career. But on the whole, war is messy. It is not like the movies. There are no rules. Mm. Talk about the laws of this and that, yeah. etc. Forget it. It is horrifying and unfair mm. nice people get killed yeah. good people get killed people who don't want anything to do with it get killed there are no rules yeah. in many ways and therefore you need fairly seasoned reporters who at least approach it knowing this they're not thinking of gosh i'm going into danger they're thinking this is going to be a difficult story to cover that's how you do it and you have your ways of looking to see how you can cover the major part of it but bring it back yeah uh, it's quite a calculation it is definitely and in that scenario we all again remember you in front of the camera but in each of those situations i suppose what we need to remember is there was always a tight team of people with you and how did you find... It's not even a team at times. You, you, the, the, if you act, uh, my rule was, when we were operating, our equipment was heavier in those days. There were no mobile phones. <laughs> there were no um, instant satellites. Those satellites were coming in by the early 90s. But they were heavy and cumbersome, etc., and needed an engineer with them. All of this sort of thing. Uh, there were no laptops you could flip open and send a story or, an, you know, that sort of thing. But... Even so, going into a what is likely to be a difficult situation, um, you don't go in singly. Mm. 
no. in television because people say, oh, well, you could take a camera. You say, the point being that if you're injured, someone has to be able to drag you out. Yeah. That's why you work one-on-one. And one can drag another out, even if it's a great hefty cameraman. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I had enormous, great giant of a bloke for a long time <laughs> I, I used to wonder if Nigel goes down will I manage to get what him 10 happen? yards um, but the argument is that's a safeguard um, because if there's more than what two of you if two get injured and shrapnel and bomb blasts go yeah. everywhere and all of it whatever, you can't drag two people yeah. simultaneously so simple little rules like it is, that, isn't it? And you, yeah. just so that you try and operate up to a certain level of safety. Um, and we didn't have any safety briefings or anything like that in those days. And quite a lot of people now go in with uh, forms of protection as well. Mm. Um, you know, ex-soldiers and people who go in. We didn't have that. Nope. You, no, uh, just... you used your wits. And so... There's a very big air of caution to each judgment when there's the sound of gunfire, the sound of bombing. Some of the, the really terrifying things when you know you've no idea where it's coming from. In the movies, people always point and say, over there. Yeah. Or if there's bombing, people know what's going on. I remember being in Afghanistan, driving along with some of the, um, the rebels, the Peshmerga, who were wild in their trucks and we were going along beautiful roads in this lovely lovely landscape Afghanistan's spectacular this was the time when the Russians were there well before the whole Mm. business later of the Taliban and the Russians were having a nasty war with the Afghans and we're in this lovely mountainous area and Driving through these trees, and they were sort of eucalyptus-like trees. I remember they were very frondy. And then there were suddenly some broken branches across the road, sheared off, you know, when you see clean yellow trunks, sort of, yeah. but sort of splintered. Not like they'd been chainsawed, but splintered, like there'd been a storm. That's the sing- signal that you're being bombed. Wow. There are bombs dropping and into soft earth but trees are splintering out and this has happened minutes before and the aircraft is so high in this clear sky you can't see it wow. it's not like the movies no so you know you have to you have you take calculated risks if you have to but all the time you're saying there's no point in being blown up yeah. You've got to get a story back. And talking about getting stories back, out of all of those situations you covered, which is the one that, yeah, I, su- I suppose the question is, which is the one you're most proud of or you think you you think was most important to well, have reported? For me, it's the one which I think is still still the most important in the sense that a lot of stories fade. They become part of history. You think you did an amazing job and people say, well, I, I wasn't born then. Or, yeah. well, I never saw that. Well, I can't remember that. So you realise that television news is, you know, it's gone the moment the closing headlines go up. 
the story that stays is Tiananmen Square, 1989, because we got the evidence of what the Chinese authorities ordered their army to do. And their army shot, we now think, thousands of people mm. in the capital, in the very center of the country, in Beijing, and indiscriminately raked fire over ordinary civilians, including, of course, the students who had protested for months leading up to this decision. Mm. We got the evidence. Twice we got into hospitals and nearly lost our lives on both of those occasions, being chased by the secret police who were plainclothes thugs. And Chinese people, ordinary people who didn't know us, didn't, didn't, no idea, didn't even speak English, helped us and held people back and scooted us out of one place, out of a hospital, by going down into the cellar and exiting through the coal hole into the streets and running. Terrifying stuff. And the ruthlessness, the callousness, the sheer murder, the brutality of that regime. The point about it, that there are many instances of that sort of behaviour in the world, but this one has been denied by the Chinese authorities. Denied, suppressed, and people are still jailed and harassed, arrested, when they even talk about it. Yeah. And it's to have a government that will not admit what it does when it slaughters its own citizens but to have evidence yeah, of it. That footage that you captured. Is significant. Yeah. And we got evidence. Yeah. So that's why. Um, it's one of the serious reasons why television is worth doing. Yeah. It's evidence. And as long as you followed the rules, and by that I mean people know who you are, you are candid about what you did, how you did it, you have proof of how you did it, and then you have the actual footage. It counts the serious evidence of the brutality of a regime that still seems to know, have no principles regarding democracy, free speech, mm freedom of action and individuality yeah so important that people continue to report those things and the world understands them properly and what, what i'm also intrigued about is you know we sat in your beautiful home as we record this and you know living a more normal sedate quieter life now kate but when you came home from these places how did you ever decompress? Because Oh, come on, come on. This is just, this is the last 20 years where there is an enormous industry which rightly addresses people who are traumatized, who have psychological or emotional problems for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes the unexpected, sometimes things they can't control. But that doesn't mean everyone's like that. 
And I work alongside and have worked alongside a number of psychiatrists and health professionals. And yes, we rightly address now people's mental problems and emotional problems much better. Not brilliantly, there are still vast sort of gaps, but we do it and we are more conscious. But you can go over the top. I came from a generation where my parents lived through the house being bombed. Literally. I mean, mm, yeah. bits of it flew off, no windows were left, there was a big hole outside just beyond the back garden, um, huge great bomb, and um, they were there at the time. Mm. And they survived. And they brushed themselves down and went looking for the dog. So a stoic, Not surprisingly, a stoic approach to life. Yeah, because everybody had to. You got on with things, keep calm and carry on. Now, there would be people, undoubtedly, and I've actually done interviews and programs about people who've got long buried trauma which wasn't addressed at times but huge numbers of people just gritted their teeth got on with mm. them and with the support of friends and family and professionals if they needed it but friends so they talked about it they got on with it they described it they didn't bury it now an entire generation got through that. Some were damaged, but not all of them. And the assumption that you must be damaged is in fact incredibly condescending. Mm. That you must be damaged. And you feel like saying, you cope. And the point is, as a reporter, is that you are, in 99% of the cases not the one who's getting the worst damage. You're not the victim, are you? You're watching people having their houses destroyed in front of them. Their children are dead. You're reporting on it. But they have to deal with far, far more. And you have a job to do. You have to tell the world about it. You have to say what is happening. You have to be precise. That occupies your mind, Mm. which says, I have a job to do. And when you think about it, we're not in the same league as people with medical skills. But there is no point, I keep saying to people, as if you were the sister in A&E in a hospital and victims of a terrible incident turn up. It's no point in the sister from an A standing there saying, oh, this is terrible, oh, we're you get on with the jobs so you're trained for. Now, reporting isn't quite in that level, but it is at a certain level that you have to tell people about it, that you need to inform, what I suppose an underlying feeling, it'll be investigated, questioned, we'll see what's happening, maybe stop it, all of these things, yeah. spread the information. It's not at the medical level, but it is at a level, I think, of being useful. And you've got, it, you've got to do it. Yeah. And to do that, you have to focus, you have to think, you have to be practical, you have to keep a grip on yourself, especially if you're going to go on camera or be recorded. Yeah. You've got to say, I've got to get all my ducks in a row 
and tell what I'm saying. And that kind of behavior through something helps you. So the worst thing in any sort of trauma is to end up saying, I didn't know what to do. Mm. I felt I could do nothing. Reporters aren't like that. They have a job. And as we start to wrap up our conversation, just two final questions. Um, One is around the current state of media, news reporting, social media, fake news. I mean, as somebody that was very much, you know, I will report the facts and what's in front of me. What's your view on where we find ourselves today? I have no idea where we are. We're in the middle of an experiment. We don't know how it's going to go. And I say that because the kind of freedoms that are now um, very obvious in social media to say anything, uh, to encourage violence, to degrade individuals and insult them, to spread rumors and lies knowingly, those freedoms are there. Democratic societies have got to work out this challenge because we have laws and those laws were brought in to try and stop harm and disinformation and the spread of rumour and hurt Mm. and injury. We've got to decide that. Secondly, there are authoritarian governments who are going to use it for their own purposes and also aren't going to allow millions of citizens that freedom either. So the tension grows between different parts of the world. It's all to play for, but the words democracy, freedom of speech, the rule of law have got to be analysed, have got to be looked at in this maelstrom of stuff that is flying around. Mm. Complicated puzzle. My final question for you, and it's because, you know, we've met, we, uh, I hosted a Q&A session with you in, for the benefit of Lewis Manning, a wonderful local charity, um, a number of nights ago, and we've come together to record this podcast as a consequence. So I'd like to ask you, why is the support you give to Lewis Manning so important to you, Kate? Humanity, humanity, caring for people. The more you look around the world, and I've seen quite a bit of the world, been very privileged, but in all sorts of circumstances, caring for people lies at the base of a decent community and good lives for people. And at all stages of life, you have to care. You have to care for your family, but friends as well, neighbours, And strangers, Mm. if we cared enough about enough people, if we just cared enough, we would do more. And when you see people who do care a great deal, such as those who are part of the hospice movement, you know that that's the right thing to do. It's so important. Absolutely agree with you, Kate. Thank you. Thank you for being a wonderful, incredible guest on the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Thank you for asking. Thank you for listening to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. My hope with every episode is that you've learned something new or heard something that challenged your way of thinking and further motivated you on your path towards becoming a more knowledgeable, informed and inspired individual and business leader. 
And don't forget, if you'd like to learn more about Evolve and the services we offer and how we can help you and your business confidently start, grow and exit, then please go to evolveadvisory.co.uk. Please also help and support this podcast by subscribing, liking and giving us a positive review on your favourite listening platform. Thanks for listening and see you next week.